0: So we're going to look at recovering joy, two things, lost joy and recovering joy. I want to touch upon a few things under lost joy uh, that weren't initially in my mind, but I want to bring them to you because I think they'll be helpful at this point. So joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control—that's the fruit of the Spirit in your life as a believer. So joy is prominent there, and it's also a standout feature of the kingdom of God, as we saw in Romans 14:17, that the the kingdom of God is the kingdom of joy. So joy should mark us out as God's people, but there are times, aren't there, when we lose our joy, when we lose that experience of joy, where we lose our sense of joy when sometimes swallowed up by many other things. Can I just turn you simply to Psalm 51 for a moment? Psalm 51, you'll see David's experience here. Uh, There's too much in this psalm to unpack, uh, and we don't have the time to do that in in the way that would be really fitting. But Psalm 51, a few things and certainly the reality of lost joy. Uh, You'll know that here is David reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba, that sad low point, one of the sad low points of the life of David. Uh, He was the man after God's own heart. He was the Lord's anointed, appointed as king over God's people. Uh, He was a man who wrote much of the book of Psalms that we have, really close to God, knew God, followed God, But Psalm 51 tells us he also sinned. Uh, We knew that, (laughs) but he was like us in that he sinned, and he was like us in that sometimes he he battled for real joy after he had lost it. So here in Psalm 51, uh, the, the sin is obvious from the start. It's even mentioned in the little bit at the beginning, which is part of inspired scripture to the choir master, a psalm of David, When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Uh, That's really a horrific line. Uh, This is the king over God's people. This is the man after God's own heart. He committed this horrific sin. And here is something of the aftermath. And here is Psalm 51 opens. He's crying out for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Again, steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. He needed the, the covenant love. He needed the, the abundant mercy of Christ. He pleaded with God to blot out his transgressions, to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, to cleanse him from his sin. He talks about his sin being always before him. Uh, even though he did his sin affected other people, he can say with force in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, of course, he had sinned against more than the Lord. He sinned against Bathsheba. <laughs> he sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, and a number of other people. And as king, he'd sinned really against the land, his people. But he's very conscious that ultimately sin is against God. Uh, God has made the, given us his commands, given us his word, and ultimately the sin is against him. Against you, he says in verse 4, you only... Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? And it continues on here, but I want to pick it up here in verse seven. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, These are incredible words. Um, If if you're human like me, uh, it's possible that some of you even at the moment are trapped in some kind of sin or you have walked in some path of sin and you have not turned from that path of sin and you desperately need the counsel of David here to to turn to the Lord and to repent from your sin in a very real uh, way that is necessary. But he also says here as he asks and pleads for God's forgiveness and a clean heart and a right spirit, he says, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Uh, his willingness to walk in God's ways and walk with God and live for God and battle against sin, his willingness had eroded and his joy had gone and been lost and he, recall, he pleads with God to restore it. It is possible that our sin can lead to a loss of joy. In fact, there's many circumstances in our lives, even in this fallen world, that we can see a loss of joy. This is also true down through the centuries. It's true today. Uh, It's true in a surprising place. Let me, I don't know whether it's a surprising place, surprising to me in some senses. Let me turn you, you don't have it in front of you, but let me turn you to the Baptist Confession of Faith. Ever heard, that, heard of that? Nice little document. Baptist Confession of Faith, Chapter 17. You know, there's wonderful doctrine, incredible truth. They've dug deep in the Word of God. They've mined the riches of the Word of God. They've set out before us uh, the doctrine of Scripture in its inspiration and its profitability in every way. They've set before us the, the character, the nature of God, etc., etc., the wonders of salvation, But there are some really interesting chapters, and if you've never read them, or if you have read them, I'd turn you back into, when you get a chance, have a look at chapter uh, 17 of the Baptist Confession of Faith, which is called, On the Perseverance of the Saints. (laughs) On the Perseverance of the Saints. There is the preservation of the saints. We are preserved and kept by God. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There's also the perseverance of the saints, and that involves a battle. And sometimes that battle is against lost joy and needing the recovery of that joy. And this is intensely realistic. It's not only wonderfully biblical, it's intensely realistic. This is real people like you and I who are facing living for Christ in the world, and they're doing it tough, and that sometimes they fall into sin or they're inconsistent, Ever been there? Uh, And now they're also facing the reality of of a lost joy. There's much in here, but let me take you to chapter 17 first. So this is the perseverance of the saints. Uh, Let me pick it up a few lines down. It says this. Hard to know where to plug in. I should have plugged in at the beginning. Let me plug in at the beginning. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect, uh, uh, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance from which source he still begets and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And, here's the realistic bit, though many storms and many floods arise and beat against them, so this is Christians, they're in Christ, they're genuinely in Christ, they know God, but... They experience many floods and storms beating against them in this life. Yet, it says, they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock, which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, Yet he is still the same and they shall be sure and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation. So God keeps us, but there is a battle and sometimes things are very cloudy and dim. Sometimes our crystal clear sight and appreciation, the closeness of God, the nearness of God, the benefits of his word. Sometimes they're real and fresh and kind of bursting upon us. Other times they seem far away and distant. Uh, We seem to have lost some of these precious things, including this joy in the Lord. And that's that goes throughout that whole section. The final paragraph of that one says, and though they the saints of God, the elect of God, though they may through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins. And for a time continue therein, whereby they incur incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. Come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. And then the next chapter is also very realistic. It's on assurance, our assurance of salvation. So there's perseverance, there's assurance, but in the midst of our real Christian life, in this real world, seeking to live for Christ, there are times when we lose our joy. There are times probably when you have lost your joy and you haven't known how to restore it. So we want to look a little bit now at how to recover that joy. Can I also say before I plunge into these things, I've actually got the ridiculous list of 10 things here. Just ignore that. I don't know how many we're going to get through. I'm going to mention a few of them to you at least. But there are many things in the word of God, many strategies, many, many biblical means that will help us recover joy. But before I plunge into them, can I just also say there will come a time. There will come a time when joy will never be lost again won't there? when we go to be with the Lord when we see him as he is when we're with him forever in his eternal kingdom joy will never be lost we won't be wandering around heaven saying oh sorry brother I was going to pick up a name but it's a biblical name which also related to somebody here uh, <laughs> brother Gideon any Gideons uh, good to see you sad, sad that you've lost your joy here in heaven no that, that won't happen we, we may lose our joy here, but we'll never lose our joy there. And in places like this, can I just nail these in for your uh, encouragement? Psalm 16. Do you know Psalm 16? So here is also some of the armory of the, the word of God in the battle against sin and loss of joy. And Psalm 16 is wonderful. Uh, let me pick it up at verse 8. The psalmist again here, David, the same writer of Psalm 51. Here he says, Psalm 16:8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So that's the reality and the possibility of joy in this life. Uh, He set the Lord always before him, the Lord's at his right hand, he's never ultimately going to be shaken, his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices in the Lord, and he says also my flesh dwells secure, and then he says for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption taken up of Christ in the New Testament. And then he says in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That, that's a joy and pleasures that can never be taken away at in your presence. It is true in measure even now in your presence, there is fullness of joy, but it will be there to perfection in your presence. There is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know whether you know this hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Uh, One of the lines which I love in that is it speaks about solid joys. Solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. Uh, We know solid joys, joys that will never be taken from us. And joys that are rich and real now, even though we endure loss of joy and all sorts of ups and downs and battles with sin and pressures from without and within one day, we will be in that place where joy will never be lost. So put Psalm 16 somewhere there uh, in your head. Fix it there. That is your hope of a place and a time when joy will never be lost. And alongside it, put this, please. And again, you're probably all familiar with this, but Revelation 21, Revelation 21 about the new heaven and the new earth in verse four is that wonderful statement. So here is the new heaven. Here is the new earth, the place where righteousness dwells Here's the holy city Here's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride for her husband. And there's all this wonderful imagery. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. And then verse four, in this place with God forever, he will. He will wipe away every tear. Not so here, not so now, but he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. Nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away, so I 'm speaking about lost joy, but I 'm not speaking about our future life. I 'm not speaking about our, our eternity in the presence of God. then there will never be lost joy. The loss we have, the, the joy we have will never be lost in that place. Okay, let me at least point to some things related to this world when we can and do lose our joys. How can we recover them? Now, I have a, a list here of 10 things. I smile. I know that's impossible. but let me g- I'm not going to give you the all in depth, but I want to give you at least several of them, please. Uh, uh, first one is, in recovering joy, I'm talking about this, the child of God recovering joy, the Christian recovering joy. The disciple of Christ recovering joy. If you are not a believer, if you are not in Christ, I point you to Christ, I point you to the gospel, I'm saying that is where you will find joy. If you are not in Christ and you have some different kind of joy and you lose that joy, which may often be related to your circumstances, that's a different thing. So the first thing you need to do in pursuing real joy is know Christ. Uh, we mentioned in passing the other day, let me go there again, uh, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. So the, the first point in recovering joy is, firstly, you must know Christ. Okay? To benefit from the other things I'm about to say, you must know Christ. In Matthew 13, there's a great description of the kingdom of God, And entering into the kingdom of God and how precious the kingdom of God is. uh, Here are these incredible parables. There's two of them side by side, back to back from verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Has that ever been your experience? Uh, you have found something like a treasure in the field and it's the kingdom of God. And, and you've come to, by the grace of God, by the work of the spirit of God, so prize that treasure of the gospel that you've been willing to part with everything else. Everything else that's precious to you. Everything else that's valuable to you in order to get this treasure hidden in the field. In his joy, this man here in the parable goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the field we must have. You might have lots of precious possessions. You might have a lot of precious relationships. All sorts of things that if the earthquake hits, like it did down in Christchurch in 2010 and 2011, uh, what do you go for? What do you run to get? What do you you seek to preserve? Uh, When things are shaking, you might lose everything. Well, the most precious thing is the kingdom of God. The most precious thing here is likened to a treasure hidden in the field. And it's likened to this. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great price, of great value, went and again sold all that he had and bought that. I did look it up at the time, I can't remember it. I do remember that the previous most valuable pearl was actually found by a Filipino fisherman, uh, and uh, I can't remember the name of it, um, but it then was superseded by something else. But there, there was this massive pearl, which was the, the biggest and largest and most valuable pearl in the world. So there are pearls of great price, and here this man finds a pearl of great price. He's looking for fine pearls, But he hits the jackpot and finds the biggest and best pearl of all, the most valuable, flawless pearl of all. Therefore, he sells everything he's got to get that. Doesn't matter what I lose, what I part with, I must get that. And I'm just saying the gospel is that pearl of great price. Christ is that pearl of great price. You don't have true joy unless you have Christ and the gospel and a part of his kingdom. So as we talk about recovering joy, I'm talking to Christians. Please, if you are not a believer, keep listening. But please, the first thing you need to do is fly to Christ. Run to Christ, say, Lord, help me. I know I have sinned and fallen short of your word, your glory. I'm in a mess. I can't help myself. Help me, save me, change me. That's the starting point in the recovering of joy and in the gaining of joy. But for the believer then, if joy has somehow eroded in your life, and it can by for all sorts of reasons, can't it? Sin, uh, sometimes individual sin, sometimes corporate sin, uh, sometimes circumstances, really tough circumstances, sometimes difficulties, sometimes persecution, sometimes Trials when we feel, well, my joy's just gone, my joy's just evaporated here. Sometimes disasters, uh, you pick your disaster. My disaster in the providence of God was the Christchurch earthquakes coming from Australia. I'd experienced zero earthquakes in Australia. They do happen, I'm told, but not very, very often. It's very much more stable place, at least geologically. Uh, but I experienced that in 2010 uh, when I was, decided I'd sleep in my study, uh, not because of a fight with my wife, but because of uh, wanting to pursue some study late into the night and then I conked out, was sleeping in my study and all of a sudden early in the morning, uh, the study is moving, <laughs> uh, the walls are moving. Uh, why is a freight train coming through the, the wall of our house where there are no train tracks? Uh, but the, the noise was incredible, the force was infel- incredible, I toppled out of bed, and that was only the early one in 2010. By the time it hit in 2011, um, I was driving home, I was coming back uh, from my part-time job at that stage as a teacher in a Christian school, I was driving along a major road, and all of a sudden things started to bounce off my car, and I thought, I thought that's interesting. <laughs> And it was bits of the median strip, the concrete in the the road, erupting out of the ground and then bouncing off my car. I thought, initially, has something gone wrong with my car? Have the wheels fallen off? Has the engine fallen out? Uh, And then I noticed everybody was having the same problem, trying to keep driving in a relatively straight line and keeping safe. And I came to a major intersection, and I looked up, the major intersection on the corner was an old church. I saw that church crumbling. I looked up the road. I saw a lot of the buildings. I couldn't see a lot of the buildings. It was all dust from falling, buildings, mainly brick buildings, older brick buildings collapsing. And then that was the start of many other experiences <laughs> in that realm. But, but when things like that happen, joy can sometimes go. Uh, we were tempted to panic then uh, we were tempted to panic mainly because of our family. The first thought in our minds, my wife and I, was where are our children? Uh, one daughter was a nanny. She was driving out of a multi-storey car park when the earthquake hit, and she had to navigate down the ramps with two little kids that weren't her own that she was looking after. In that, my my two sons were off in the photographic shop. And uh, things started to move around, so they thought, maybe we'd better get out of here. And then people, particularly some of the older women there, were trying to just <coughs> require assistance. And they grabbed onto the arms. One, one young lady grabbed onto my youngest son's arms. And in the process of grabbing onto his arms, her r- lovely fingernails <laughs> really lacerated him almost to pieces. But she was just desperately trying to cling on to things. Uh, And they made it out under the awning outside the shopping centre and then decided, let's move a little bit on. And after they moved on, they saw that collapse. And I think people died in that place. Um, Anyway, all phone contact was gone. I'll give you a a live recitation of what happened on that day. But that was something which tempted to erode your joy. Uh, And as a pastor, as a Christian, I thought, not only have my... Human family, but my spiritual family, you know, and the next few days we searched for people. Uh, Thankfully, all were alive that we searched for, but some friends of people in our church, some friends of our family died in those earthquakes and weren't found for ages. And then there's all the normal, inconvenience stuff, which you, of course, live through when you don't have electricity or water or all that sort of stuff. Many of you are familiar with that in different ways. But um, joy gets lost by a whole host of circumstances, but how do we recover it? Uh, We sometimes lose our joy through illness, all sorts of strife and sickness. Sometimes we lose our joy through interpersonal difficulties. How do we recover it? Let me give you several things which probably won't add up to 10. Okay, we've got knowing Christ, number one. Number two is prayer. That's Psalm 51, isn't it? Psalm 51, verse 12. Here's David's first strategy. Uh, He's battling his sin and the awareness of his sin. He's had to wake up to it. He'd initially been hard-hearted with his own sin, and he needed the, the prophet Nathan to come and wake him up by telling him a parable about a man and sheep, etc. And and he suddenly realizes, well, Nathan helps him realize, you are the man, you're the guy I'm speaking about. You're the one who's in this situation. He realizes his, his sin, and now he's calling out to God to restore his joy. So as part of his process of repentance, as part of calling out to God for mercy, as part of feeling far, far, far away from God, he cries out, 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God is the source of every good thing, we're told in James one seventeen, 17. He's the giver of every good gifts. He gives generously and without reproach, we're told in James 1, 5. Do you lack joy? How about asking God? Uh, How about asking God? Start with asking God, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. There are many other things to do, and there are important things to do alongside this, but ask God. When you face enemies, as the psalmist did in Psalm 30, he cried out to God. When he was down in the pit in Psalm 30, verse 3, he cried out to God. When he was weeping through the night in Psalm 30, verse 5, he cried out to God, What do you do, Christian? You turn to God, uh, there's no help in self. there's often no help in people, at least help that will really help <laughs> in people. So He cries out to God, who alone is his ultimate helper and shield. when you 're mourning, when you 're miserable, what do you do? You ask God that's the psalmist practice. we're told in Philippians chapter four, six and seven. We're told that we need to turn to the Lord with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Remember that verse? Some, or verses. Sorry. Slowing down computer. There we go. Okay. This is the danger of using an electronic device. <laughs> he did, he did. Okay. Philippians 4 and verses six and seven particularly. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, there's nobody anxious here, are there? There's nobody who's anxious about anything. But if you happen to be uh, a human being and anxious about things, uh, here is Paul again. He's just said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Now he says in verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if we're making a list, we could go on for many ages and many minutes and many hours about prayer, but please start there, okay? If you've lost joy, ask God. Who is the one who gave you joy in the first place? The Lord. Who is the one who can restore joy to you? It's the Lord, ask the Lord, ask your heavenly Father, who we're told in Matthew 7, 7 to 11, delights to give good gifts to his children. He's the God who delights to give good gifts to his children. Number three on our the list. These are many things that we could spend many hours on, we're spending a few minutes on. How to recover joy. Now you know this one. Set your mind on Christ. Okay. Set your mind on Christ. You know, it doesn't work, don't you, to set your mind on yourself or to set your mind on your circumstances. Uh, Set your mind on Christ doesn't mean you don't deal with your circumstances and you don't look to yourself. But ultimately, you set your mind on Christ. If you've lost your joy, the Bible urges you to fix your mind on Christ. Had the Lord's Supper here. Remember him. Remember him, the great treasure. Remember him, the pearl of great price. Remember him. When you first found him, you willingly and joyfully parted with everything to gain him. What about now? If you've lost your joy, what are you going to do to regain it? And I'm saying one of the things you must do is fix your minds on him. Often we've got so much, don't we, going around in our head. Uh, so much is sort of turning around. Maybe you wake up in the middle of the night and everything's coming in. You're thinking about, oh, in my case, my granddaughter you know, fell off a, a scooter and broke her arm and and this person in the church is in this situation. and This other non-believing friend is still far from God and my brother and sister, after 50 years of me being a Christian and praying for them, are still not in crisis. All sorts of things that fill my head, fill my brain, but I need to set my mind on Christ. Colossians 3 is one of the places where this is highlighted. Colossians 3, and the opening few verses there, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Set your mind on Christ. Hebrews 12, we've touched upon it and mentioned it several times. Hebrews 12. Opening few verses again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy, that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, I know my father-in-law often used to tell me about one of the things they said in their Sunday school days in their youth days when he was a young man. And that was this about joy. Joy is J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, yourself last Jesus first others second yourself last you can analyze that theologically but Jesus first was the heartbeat of joy and if you want to recover your your mind if you want to recover your joy set your mind on Christ knowing Christ following Christ obeying Christ looking to Christ that's the way of true joy isn't it that's the way of true joy So we've got prayer, we've got setting our minds on Christ. Parallel to that is this. Fix your mind and your heart on the gospel of Christ. Not only the person of Christ, that's wonderful and crucial, but also on the gospel of Christ. Joy revives when we remember the person of Christ. And also when we reflect on his saving work, it's a perfect saving work. He took us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with him. He's continued to teach us and shepherd us to pull us up when we fell down. His gospel work has come. Fix your mind on Christ and the gospel. I'm going to quote a little bit here from John Piper because he wrote a book called, well, he wrote many books, but he also wrote a book called When I Don't Desire God. And it was on, on the battle for joy. Uh, he wrote his, a famous book on desiring God. Uh, he wrote this book, When I Don't Desire God, because he at least was realistic enough to recognise uh, that there are times when joy dies. How do we recover Joy. And he's urging us to look at the gospel. He said things like this. The fight for joy loses one of its weapons when it does not regularly hear the gospel preached. The fight for joy, your fight for joy, loses one of its weapons when it does not regularly hear the gospel preached. He also said, the fight for joy is a fight to grasp and marvel at what happened in the death of Christ. If I could really grasp that, if I could really grab that and hold on to that and cling to that, what happened in the death of Christ, that that death by him, the perfect sinless one, in my place as a sinner, taking all my sins in his body on the tree, uh, perfectly accepted by the Father, that perfect sacrifice, that substitutionary atonement, if I really grasp that, That's at the heart of joy. Lose my sight of the gospel and Christ and what he has done. I can lose my joy. He went on. Nothing is more foundational for the joy of undeserving people than the cross of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the battle for joy, we must take this truth and preach it to ourselves, which has been advised by, I think we had advised by, Martin Lloyd-Jones was quoted at one point over the last few days. But he often said, preach the gospel to yourself. This is the same advice. The gospel of Christ crucified and risen is meant to be preached to the soul. So if you're far from God, preach the gospel to yourself. Recall the greatness of the gospel. Read those passages of scripture that highlight what has been done for us on the cross by our great Savior. So both in corporate worship where we should be hearing that gospel message regularly and also preach it to yourself hour by hour in the fight for joy. He concluded by saying this, hearing the word of the cross and preaching it to ourselves is the central strategy, in his opinion, the central strategy for sinners in the fight for joy. Hearing the word of the cross, preaching that same gospel to ourselves Reminding ourselves of this truth is the central strategy for sinners in the fight for joy. Nothing works without this. Here is where we stand. Here is where we stay. We never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow the gospel. Next one is this. I'm giving you them quickly as our time draws to a close. Not only fix your mind on Christ and the gospel... But joy is also related to battling sin, isn't it? Because what's the number one joy killer? Sin is the number one joy killer. When you break God's good law, when you rebel against God's great person, that is a major joy killer. So the confession of sin And true repentance and turning from sin is at the very heart of saving faith. We must turn from the sin that sucked all the true joy out of my life. We must turn from the sin that fills my mind and heart and life with false and fleeting joys. What is the path to recovering and maintaining true joy? It's confession and repentance. Uh, many verses on this. Can I t- highlight uh, Proverbs 28, please? Proverbs 28 and verse 13, a memorable one that I often call to mind in my own battle against sin. Proverbs 28:13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. We see David there, don't we? Uh, in the, before Psalm 51, uh, David, after his sin, when we conceal our transgressions, we will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. He who confesses his sin and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We go to Psalm 32, we won't. We go to Colossians 3. Where we're urged to put sin to death, we remind ourselves of the words of people like John Owen who said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You want a joy in your life? Battle against sin. Kill sin by the grace of God. Turn from sin in repentance. Confess your sin and forsake it. Another one is obedience. Disobedience. Clouds and sometimes wrecks our joy. None of us are perfectly obedient. If you are, please see me later. Uh, but, but none of us are perfectly obedient. We long to be perfectly obedient. We long to obey God in everything. But we often fall short of that. But obedience is actually crucial in this restoration of joy. I combat sin with genuine confession. I combat sin with genuine repentance. But I also seek... By the grace of God, to walk in obedience. As Joan has told me a couple of times over the weekend, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We're highlighting that. There's a a man called Thomas Parr who wrote a book called Joy in Dark Places. I don't know whether you attempted to read a book like that. Uh, Joy in Dark Places. It's a good book. Uh, Chapter 10 he entitled... To have joy, you must obey. (laughs) To have joy, you must obey. He's careful as he opens up the subject to distinguish between carnal obedience and gospel obedience. There's a heartless, gospel-less obedience just going through the motions, going through the motions of conforming outwardly to God's law. He's not talking about that. He's talking about heart obedience. Uh, What he means is, This is the obedience of real value in cultivating true joy. There is true gospel obedience, which is a fruit and a mark of Christ's saving work. And that is hand in hand with true joy. Uh, Remember this description in the Old Testament Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. Here is a description of the new covenant. So even in talking about the new covenant, the new covenant calls us to and secures this gospel obedience. If we want joy, we walk in obedience to our Lord. Matthew twenty eight, the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen through to twenty, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Gospel obedience. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's woven in to our Christian lives. I love how the, the Apostle John highlights this particular theme in his first epistle. So 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. Let me read you a few verses. Uh, John emphasizes this many times. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. He says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. That's not me saying that. That's the apostle John saying that, quoting things he had been taught by his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. Gospel obedience, crucial and central to joy. Uh, Apostle John also said in his third letter, 3 John, opening four verses, that he rejoiced that his friend Gaius was walking in the truth. And he said he had no greater joy than to know that his children were walking in the truth. If you're a parent, you probably resonate with that very strongly. You've got no greater joy than to know your children are not just have their head full of Bible knowledge. That's wonderful. But you've got no greater joy than to see them walking in the truth, to know that they're actually walking in their truth, trusting in Christ. What do you want most for your children, your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ that were walking in in the truth, and therefore there's no greater joy. Uh, Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said those that look to be happy must first look to be holy. (laughs) Those who look to be happy must first look to be holy. Well, we'll come to an end at that point. Let me give you very quickly the other ones, just in case you've got that kind of mind that (laughs) I have. Uh, The next one was to be saturated in the Bible. Real joy comes when we are saturated in the Word of God, when we're immersed in the Word of God, or using Colossians 3:16 language, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That needs to be true individually. In Colossians 3, it's corporate. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, the Colossian church, richly. Again, be saturated in the Word of God. The next one was recovery of joy through joy's twin. You know what joy's twin is? Anybody want to hesitate, hazard a guess? It could be. I'll probably even replace my notes here. But what I thought of was thankfulness. Joy and thankfulness. Uh, sometimes when I'm feeling a lack of joy, I count my blessings. I, I recall the many, many things I have to give thanks to God for. And sometimes the recalling in thankfulness of what God has done and what God is doing and what God has given gives birth to joy again. Last two are these. There is joy also in the area, and this is vital. I'm sorry, I've got these at the end. Joy in evangelism and mission. Don't you feel particularly that height of joy when you are in the situation of sharing the gospel with those who do not know Christ? And you're aware of that stark contrast between them in their sin and you privileged by the grace of God alone in Christ and the privilege of sharing the gospel of of mission of bringing the the good news to people of seeing churches planted, gospel going out, churches being built up there's incredible joy in that if you say I'm just going to stick at home and cultivate joy on my own, it doesn't quite work that way, joy is found in Doing the work of God from the heart. And the other one, like it, and the final one is, joy is also recovered in fellowship, isn't it? It's in the church of Christ. It's in fellowship with other believers that we recover true joy. Iron sharpens iron. Uh, we, we do what Romans 12 says. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And we weep with those who weep. Sometimes you may come very sad Uh, even to meet with the people of God and you see that they're joyful in the Lord and that kind of kindles a fresh joy in your own heart so that is also a way of recovering joy there is much more but i leave those with you may may God give us grace Uh, sometimes when we feel a lack of joy we tend to put the Bible on the shelf we don't feel like reading it because it only reminds me of what I've well, I'm battling against, maybe I've fallen into sin and we ignore the word and sometimes we feel so overwhelmed that we don't even pray and we, we ignore the means of grace God has given us to help us restore true joy. Well, may God, by this, this simple reminder, bring things to you that will be helpful practically, that your joy might be full to the glory of God. Shall I pray? Father, please help us. Father, some of us, well, all of us know the reality at at times of lost joy and maybe even some at the moment. And we do pray, Lord, that you would help us. You would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Father, you would remind us of Christ. You would remind us of the gospel. Father, you would help us take all these many means of grace up. And that through these that our joy might be kindled afresh we might be reminded of that solid joy and lasting treasure that is in Christ alone. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.